welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about classical music, board games, and fried foods. I'm your co-host, Mark Bigney, and with me is an aficionado of all three of those things, an expert on each of those topics, PhD in all subjects relating to those three categories, Michael Walker. How are you doing, Dr. 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 Walker? Fantastic. I take all of those things into all the orifices of my face. I don't think that's, I think that means that you're eating wrong and possibly, definitely board games wrong. Oh. I, that explains the face plant you did into our last game. Anyway, we're going to talk about the games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And then we're going to talk about our feature game, which this week is Lacrimosa, aka The Crying Game. So, Walker, what did you play last week? Last week, Mark, we played, or I streamed, a bunch of small games. We did a whole bunch of little games, so if you want to come to our YouTube live channel and check these out. There are no little games, just little gamers. It's true. We did Dice Hospital ER, Emergency Roll, Joan of Arc, Orleans Draw and Write, Tinder Blocks, and Similo. So apparently Dice Hospital ER, Emergency Roll was sort of like a side sort of add-on to the latest Kickstarter of, of Dice Hospital. So this is a, a roll and write. Very standard fare. You have some objectives that you can achieve by by filling in your sort of ER in a certain way. And the ER is represented by these chains of, of hexagons that you fill in by dice results. And the dice results are paired with uh, special abilities. So there's three dice you roll. Each are paired with the colored special ability and you have different paths of varying sizes and they have to be in ascending order. So you sort of have to choose and use these abilities to try to get the best score. This is put out by Alley Cat Games and designed by Matthew Dustin and Brett J. Gilbert. Matthew Dunstan certainly likes his roll and writes. I uh, question, uh, was there anything really breaking the mold in this particular roll and write or just another perfectly satisfying, inoffensive, multiplayer, solitaire, sort of fill-in-the-sheet kind of game? Just as you said. That's the one? Okay. That's the one. Sure. On the flip side of the coin, we have Joan of Arc, Orleans, Draw and Write. This is a review copy given to us by the designer. This is published by DLP Games, and this has a little bit of more player action. There's lots of things that you're going to cross on off on your sheet when other players have used those things. So much like Orleans, you're traveling around using roads and boats on, on a very standard uh, Orleans map. And when someone builds a tavern, which happens in Orleans, then you have to cross it on your, off on your sheet. You don't get to build that tavern. I don't mean to be contrarian, but I will merely note at this point, and I, I agree with you completely in your framing, Exceptional player interaction for a roll and write is usually equivalent to the minimal we will accept in a euro. Namely, I got there first. I got there first. Well, yeah. that's that's all of the interaction, even the, but all of the interaction in Joan of Arc. But at least there are is some. Absolutely. Rather, rather no, like I said, I agree with your framing. So there's a whole bunch of other uh, charts and other areas that you're going to be crossing off, and when you complete those charts. There are other things that you're going to cross off, just like the the book track on the bottom. There are some gold milestones there that also are, you know, first come, first serve. And all in all, it gives you that real feeling of Orleans in a much shorter package, much easier to teach, uh, very interesting buildings. There's going to be, it's not the same sheet every time and just rolling dice. There's, you know, uh, I think there's 20 buildings that you put out randomly every time. Keeps the game interesting. I very much enjoy Joan of Arc. And I will point out, it is one of my favorite drawn rights, roll and rights, whatever, because there is that all-important draft at the beginning. I think that's the most salient point of player interaction in Joan of Arc, and indeed one of the more pointed bits of player interaction in any drawn right. Because the couple times that I've played, I, I know for certain I was looking over at what you needed and thinking, oh, I can't let him have that, so I better take it from him. Yeah, there's very much, because you're... Uh... In Orleans, you're drawing all these different sorts of occupations from the bag. In in Joan of Arc, you draw uh, N plus one, so that's players plus one. And there's really that feel of you need certain ones and you want them to be there for your turn. So there's this feeling of, you know, anxiety of, of getting the ones you want. Next up, Mark, this one I think you have to play. It's a dexterity game called Tinder blocks. With I've already X. been blocked on Twinder. I violated their oh. terms of service. Yeah, so that's not hard to do nowadays. All right, so this is designed by Rob Sparks and published by Alley Cat Games. And this is uh, you drawing a card, and I'll tell you how and how to stack some blocks and then add them to to the structure. I guess you'd say, and you have to do all of this with tweezers. So you have your. I'm there. It comes in a tin. 
and has some cards. So uh, has your base card, which is three rectangles, usually to start. I think there might be random starting things. And then you flip a card and it'll say another rectangle block. Maybe it'll have a, a yellow block on it, or maybe it'll be a, a yellow and a red cube. And then you sort of assemble them, what you need. And then you pick up that assembly with the tweezers. The card might say you have to use your offhand. And then you add that to the middle base. And then you just go around flipping cards and everyone has to do that until they've made a mistake and then they're out and you just keep going until there's no one left. Fantastic. Sold. I knew you would be. Yep. It is a great little game. All comes in a little tin. The I to love tins. The, the tweezers are just... And we were talking about, and I think they're, <laughs> they're purposely painful to use. They're, well, that's the great thing. Yeah. If it's a dexterity game, sometimes a bad component can be part of the game. Yes. <laughs> Whether it was intentional or not. Because you can't, you know, like deep grab it because it, you know, then it will grab it in the middle and that shoots out. Like you have to, <laughs> you have to grab it sure. in the center by just the. Like Turkish and, oil wrestling. Ah, it's just great. Tinderblocks, and it's already on its way, so we will have our own copy. Very inexpensive. Splendid. Next up is Similo, at least I think that's how it's pronounced. S-I-M-I-L-O. And this is designed by Martino Chikarera and Helmar Hayek and Priscilla Zietz. I am very sorry to those people if that is not how they are spoken. Anyway, this is published by Horrible Guild, and it's very straightforward uh, sort of Mysterium type game. Uh, they have all sorts of different decks you can choose from. We played, uh, the animal deck and the Greek God deck. So it's a large deck of animals. And you pair up the animal that Zeus pretended to be in order to get some action. No, you only choose one Mark. We choose, we did one of each, but we'll I'll talk about the animal. Nothing one. but classy references here That's... in this podcast. So you're going to deal out 12, 12 animals, all different animals. And the the sort of clue giver, I guess you can say, picks one at random, looks at it, and then they spread the 12 animals out. And then they're going to do a series of clues with other animals. And so you're going to put out either herbivores or maybe brown animals or meat eaters or, you know, four legs. Or, you know, you're going to try to do the best you can with the five cards that you draw to try to get the other team to guess the clue animal. And so first they have to get rid of one, then two, then three, then four, and then you're down to just two cards and then your final clue. And hopefully you haven't discarded the main animal. I enjoyed it. I borrowed it because I think Butterfly Babe will enjoy it. We haven't had a chance to try it yet. Very straightforward. Looking for no more plays of Similo. Well, on the topic of small and charming dexterity games, I've been playing more solo games of Crazy Tower. Uh, we've talked about this a number of times on the show. I really want to try some of those other game modes. I've just been playing solo, which I find a great little three-minute diversion. If I need a quick break from work or uh, sort of change my way of thinking, I just pull out one of the challenges and go to town on trying to set out the blocks and the cards. Somewhat similarly to the game that Walker was discussing, it is about a combination of cards and physical blocks. And the, the neat thing about Crazy Tower is that you are arbitrarily blocked from building on certain spates, and that really forces you to reconsider how to use the available blocks you have, and indeed sometimes the timing gets very unfortunate. It is one of those mass market games that I think does exactly what it needs to do no other. It is very cheap and approachable, and I definitely think that Crazy Tower is worth the, you know, five minutes that it takes of your time. This is designed by Alexis Harvey, Félix Leblanc, Manuel Lucas Bergeron Duhamel, and Mathieu Auger. The current version is published by Synapses Games and can be available in, uh, you know, lots of mass market locations. Next up is a game that we both played, Mark. You know how I love great titles. This is a great title, Mark. Are you ready? Yes. It starts off as Glendrovers. And well, wow, you know, what a great start, right? We got Mosaic. <laughs> we got, you know, uh, New Empires. We've got all sorts of exciting things. Here's when the... you say Glendrover, yep. right? Yeah, go on. All right. Then next word is... Empire, so Glendrover's Empires. It's like, wow, well, I know that. Yeah. I know he, he's done Empires before. That was a great game, man. It was. Off to a great start, right? <laughs> Colon. Yep. So Glendrover's Empires Galactic Rebellion. Yeah. So this is sort of, I don't want to say reskinning, but sort of like a reimagined of of Empires. Empires Age of Empires Discovery, Age yeah. Of Discovery. In a sci-fi setting. And... <laughs> 
pregnant pause. I, I, I well, I just don't, I want to make sure that my point is clear. Don't spend any money on this game. <laughs> I wouldn't not waste your time trying to play it. Yep, uh, it is bad, <laughs> and I would not. I would not put this on anybody else. Okay, so for broader context, you have to understand that in the broader gaming environment of Kingston, certainly amongst our group, I've been the primary vector of introducing Glenn Drubber games, with the possible exception of Railways of the World, for which Walker was already enthusiastic. And I keep telling people, Glenn Drubber has had some really good games, but the problem is, is that his output has been extremely uneven, and a lot of his games have had some serious, serious problems. But the thing is, in a group that has experience with Railways of the World, Empire's Age of Discovery, Raccoon Tycoon, and Mosaic, they don't know what I'm talking about. And every time I'm like, yeah, Glenn Drover, what are you talking about? He's amazing. It's like, sure, I'm a big fan of a lot of Glenn Drover's games. But then there are some other games. And when we were playing Empire's Age of Discovery, and we were all commiserating over the theme, you know, an unapologetic, old-style, gay colonialism kind of thing, I said, yeah, it's a shame that the sci-fi version isn't really any good. And everyone's like, oh, there's a sci-fi version. We should try that. I'm like, okay. Now, in my in my defense, I did kind of warn them, uh, and kind of, I'll take responsibility, maybe I should have advocate a little bit more strongly. Now, keep in mind, we played with some variant rules as suggested by the designer that mitigated some of the terribleness. Let me just give you one example of how the the strange and baffling design decisions can come together. Because even though people accuse us of being overly negative, we don't throw around words like bad very much. No. So there are these covert missions. In theory, what you do is you pile up workers in a box and there are costs to doing covert missions. You sacrifice a certain number of workers in that box. And in turn order, you can choose one of the available covert missions, of which there are three, pay the cost, and do a covert mission. In the rules as written, only one player ever gets to do that. So, okay, fine, you jockey for turn order, you make sure you're first, and then on the turn you're first, you can go do that, and it puts more pressure on people to care about turn order. Fine. Then there are these other action cards, which sometimes are flipped up at random. And just triggered arbitrarily. One of them says, for the rest of the game, you are now first in priority for covert missions, regardless of anything else that happens. I didn't know this card was at the game. In the rules as written, what that means is effectively that there's an entire subset of the board. Now, keep in mind, the cost for covert missions can be as low as one, and frequently, of the three available, there will be one that costs one. And the thought that someone can just lock that up completely randomly for the rest of the game, that's Galactic Rebellion for you. But there's icing on the cake, Mark, because you could be on your first covert mission, you could have been first player, and you yes. said you're going to do a covert mission. It's true, yep. And it could be very cheap, and and a lot of the benefits of these covert missions is you get to draw one of those cards at random. Exactly. So your very first draw on your very first covert mission is yeah. like, oh, I get to do it for the rest of the game, and nobody gets to participate in that part of the game yes. ever. Now, that part of the covert missions is relatively fixable in Galactic Rebellion, and indeed, a very common variant is, well, don't just let the first player do it. Let any So long as there are cards available, let people do it. Fine, no problem. It's a relatively minor fix. You fix another technology in the game, ain't no thing. There's no way around the rest of the awkwardness, though, because there are these sentinels, and they're the bad guys, and they do some things over the course of the game, like determine how expensive covert missions are. Fine, no problem. They're fine with that. At the end of the game, they just start murdering people, and the way that it works is they just keep murdering regardless of the variants available, of the mainstream variants available, right? The designer's got a couple suggested variants. There, are, You can tell that the fan community, such as it is, is desperately trying to avoid the awfulness because the way it actually works in the rules as written is you do this tedious mechanical procedure a billion times just to keep systematically murdering whoever's in the lead in a given area majority spot. Now, you might be thinking, oh, well, so they just start killing anyone who's in the lead? Well, kind of, because you might be imagining, well, they'll murder me until Walker's in the lead, and then they start murdering Walker. No, 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 no. They just keep killing me till I'm gone. And so someone might look at that and say, so let me get this straight. This is an area majority game. It's already often a really good idea to be second place in a lot of places in an area majority game, and they're just going to walk away with a bunch of easy wins? Yeah, that's kind of how the design ends up. It, that's how it did end up in our game, too. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Best of all, my favorite part of that particular element, and again, they just systematically murder. Uh, there are ways to defend yourself, but still, there's going to be a lot of casualties. If two people are tied for first place when the endgame happens, they arbitrarily, at random, decide who they're going to murder. 
Again, no alternation. They just systematically wipe out the player that's in the lead or the player that happened to be tied for the lead and got chosen randomly. It's wild. And I think the, the feeling was best summed up by Huey. He said, look, if I had played this game before Empire's Age of Discovery, I wouldn't really like it. But now that I've played it after Empire's Age of Discovery, I think I'm really angry. <laughs> and it's just so striking how bizarrely awful the changes are. And it's a shame because I started thinking about halfway through Galactic Rebellion. Could I just import the Age of Discovery rules onto this so then I could have play the same game and not have the colonial strappings? And the problem is there's one set of components that doesn't work. And that's the... Native resistance tiles. Yes, even saying it makes clear how distasteful it is. Anyway, so maybe if I had, uh, if I encounter somebody with better graphical design prowess who could print out equivalents for a sci-fi version, we could import the rules. Until then, we have two deeply flawed games, only one of which is worth actually playing for its own rule set. I want to cover, too, the fact that they do introduce a way that you can offset the painfulness at the end of the game. You can spend a lot of time and effort to battle these sentinels in order to minimize their numbers so they don't hurt so much. But that could end up just helping another player because yeah. they could end up being the person that has the most there. And so you're dedicating these resources to it and and killing them doesn't give you anything. If I were in the mood to redesign the game, which I'm not, I think to start some victory point bonus for killing sentinels right at the beginning would be something to start with. Yeah, you're then, right. It, the incentives, I understand what the incentives are. Like the theory is, okay, fine. You're winning the area majority, but you're all in a rebellion. You have to thin out the Imperial presence in order for you to really profit from it. Fine. But the incentive structure in a multiplayer competitive game just doesn't shake out properly. And then the time it takes to do that combat. And then the fact that yes. the game requires you to have two bags and comes with zero bags. <laughs> yeah, it's a good point. <laughs> you're right. It's They're two bags short. It's It's an excellent point. And that is Glenn Drover's Empires Galactic Rebellion, designed by Don Bear and Glenn Drover, published by Eagle Griffin Games. Sort yourself out. <laughs> Figured out is what I says. I played a game of the North Provenance. Now, uh, this is a review copy sent to us by John Cloudus, the designer. And there is a group of gamers, among them one of the pod boys, who are hardcore devotees of John Cloudus. I've enjoyed a number of his games. Omen Reign of War, Cacti was surprisingly cute and enjoyable given its simplicity. And I've had a good time with a lot of John Cloudus designs. But the North Provenance is the first time I've played something and I'm like, I see why he has such a devoted fan base. This is sort of a an expand alone to the North, which was in a similar environment. The art is really compelling. It's all these creepy looking automatons that you're reprogramming and repurposing. And this is finally a card game with lots of really clever combos that I don't feel is overwrought. And the, the incentive structures are awfully subtle. Like the economy, such as it is, of points, reveals itself in a very, very pleasing way over the course of your first couple of games. Like, for example, there's this deck building element whereby you discard a card from hand to quote-unquote reprogram a card and it comes and joins your deck and it triggers a special power in the process. And, of course, combo shenanigans could then ensue. And initially I thought, oh, well, this is great because you get points for cards in your deck at the end of the game. This is just straight upside. And then I realized, but wait a minute, I discarded a card to do this. At the end of each of my turns... I effectively gain points for each card I have left in my hand. It's not quite that simple. It's about bleeding points for opponent, but whatever. Shaked out to the same. And so you're actually paying a rather considerable opportunity cost in the process of doing so. And that blew up my understanding of the tempo. So the actions involved are very, very simple, but the consequences of those actions are such that I wasn't able to process everything that was going on, and so the combos felt satisfyingly chaotic, if that makes any sense. I'm sure there are some people who have a, a better strategic mind who could, who could change together all the available card effects and be able to see the precise consequences of every move when playing the North or the North Providence. But I wasn't quite there, but I was loving the ride. I thought this was an extremely compelling two-player card game, one of the best I've played for a long time, and I absolutely see now this sort of cloudous appeal of the combinations that he re that he uh, gets from a very simple card set and a very simple set of rules. It took a little bit to get into it, but once I did and I saw the, 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 the opportunities opening up, and my opponent felt the same way. And I have to note that uh, provenance may be the only word with which I'm familiar where Americans pronounce it in the French way and I pronounce it in the English way. So if you want to say provenance, 
That's fine. You do you. I'm not going to judge you, unlike the rest of the internet. So that's the North Providence. I'm now very, very keen to play more of the North Providence. I'm very keen to track down the original of the North. I'd like to see different card effects and, and all that uh, kind of stuff. Uh, opinions are divided as to which one's preferable. This was originally made available in 2020 as a print-and-play version on John Claudius's website, but we have a physical version again. Uh, review copy sent to us from the designer. Looking forward to trying it again. Looking forward to showing it to you, Walker. Great time with the North Provenance. Lastly for me, you and I got to play Tsukiyumi Full Moon Down 2nd Edition. Speaking of great names. <laughs> this is designed by Felix Mercat and published by Gray Fox Games. And it is a very interesting game. Lots of very interesting factions. We have like whales and, and stuff. It was doing heavily asymmetric troops on a map style games before that was in vogue everywhere because the original design in Germany is roughly coextensive with root. So it's one of the few times that you can point to a heavily asymmetric troops on a map game and not say, well, this is just in the, in the vein of root. So second edition apparently introduced a bunch of new races and with uh, well, no, it, it, it rather consolidated all the ones that had already been printed in, in uh, the, the German standee edition. Oh, gotcha. So, it, it came came with yes the expansions, factions, and apparently with our three player game we took a few of the more advanced type factions I guess you could say, which might have sort of not given us the full experience of what maybe Fool Moon Down was I capable would, of doing. I would rather blame uh, our general attitudes. So this is indeed a troops on a map game, and it encourages you to mix up with players more than we did. Part of the the strangeness was because the two two of the three factions had relatively low figure density, but they're very very beefy, and so I'm not going to criticize anyone's decisions. But the game try I think, it, based on my past playings, is a little bit better when people are willing to mix it up starting in round one. Yeah, it seems though that we kept doing the math and wanting like full full death for the other side. Right. Like we wouldn't attack unless we we could get everything, everything we wanted. Right. Where, whereas it, it doesn't work that way. You go in and you kill as much as you do damage. And because, and because like you said, our, our figures were so large in a lot of instances that, that usually that number was too high. Well, it and, was, I, and I think you're underselling the genius of Tsukumi's combat system because I really, really do enjoy it. What happens is the attacker, the active player plays a card and they just do what they want to do. Either, kill a certain number of units, or if they reach a threshold, take control of the hex, and it's just deterministic. And then everyone else gets to pick from a menu of responses, some of which get very, very interesting. And so the trade-offs involved in deciding which card to play and when, and then the you know response on the part of the other player, it is one of the ways that Tsukiyumi seeks to avoid the A and B fight C wins problem, because if A and B are fighting, typically whoever's coming out on the short end of the stick there is able to take something that will help them either strategically or tactically. Yeah, so unfortunately that didn't pan out in our game. There wasn't any... It's true, we mostly fought the Oni, yeah. Yeah, didn't really... There wasn't any big decisions with the cards, unfortunately, because a lot of cases, like you said, you could either, you could win the fight but lose control of the hex. Right. There's you know a lot of instances where or vice versa or vice versa. Yeah, yeah. Interesting things could happen with the cards, but they did not, unfortunately. So I am I definitely want to try it again. I wish the graphic design was much better. I really feel as though the all of the numbers they throw at you could have been parsed in a way that were much more understandable if they were just presented in a different way. Like on standees? Maybe on standees <laughs> or, or just, you know, categorize them differently. They have these symbols and like this is, this means attack and this means, you know, whatever word they use for controlling the hex. Oh, and, conquest and value, this yeah. Is, this is hit points and the hit points were fine. The other two, you oh, know. Oh, fair enough. Triangle and square. It's like, okay. Actually, it's worse than that. It's upward facing triangle, yeah. downward facing triangle. <laughs> <laughs> Even worse. So, yeah. So, if they were column or color coded or something, just something because it, there is a lot of information to take in right sure. off the start, right? Because you're learning your faction, which is different than everybody else's. And mm -hmm. now you have these numbers that aren't exactly making sense. So, there are two things that I really, really like about Tsukiyumi. One of them is the combat system. The other is the action system. There's this very simple draft of action cards, and the action cards do offer considerable differences. Like, for example, there are some cards that skip phases. I'm going to play an action card, and I just don't do one of the major phases of the game, but it's represented elsewhere that I get to do more. Some of them have combat actions right at the top of the round, when, in fact, most of the time combat actions happen at the end. 
Layered on top of that is the so-called white phase. It's the phase at the start where everyone gets to pick two of a list of the same, and that gives you some degree of flexibility. So choosing how to maximize your actions to get where you need to go, I find really, really engaging on top of the combat system, which, as you pointed out, requires a certain mindset of players at the table. We've commented before that our group likes troops on a map games, but often doesn't approach them properly. So it's a weird disconnect between our preferences and our play styles, but it is what it is. And uh, I'll say that I was very impressed with how quickly it moved, because one of my criticisms of my past plays of Tsukiyumi has been that it is very much in the vein of, you know, the three-hour troops on a map game, which is sometimes okay, but not necessarily. That's just past the threshold of what I might suggest on a whim. But we got the entire game done in two hours with a rules explanation, which was pretty impressive. Which is odd, because it does have one rule that I I, I, I don't want to go so far as to hate, but uh-huh. I just dislike. The, sure. the rules where you where you draw cards and have to use those cards immediately. There is this whole event system deck where you're drawing, you know, three or four cards sometimes from an event deck, and then you get to play two to three of them, and you just... zero to three of them. Zero to three. So you've just drawn these cards, and and you have to parse them immediately, and if it's your first game, you have no idea what they do. Right. And then you have to play them immediately. I I would much rather prefer, you know, you get to draw them, put them to the side, and then use ones Mm. that are in your hand, and then the game will flow much better. Anyway, well, you the, can use the ones in your hand, but you're right. You, you you always want to read the new ones and figure out how they do. And this was exacerbated by the fact that you were playing the faction that drowns in event cards. It's true. And very free, your special power is something like draw five event cards, play three right away. And it's not even like the other ones play up to three. It's like, no, 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 you have to play three it's every time. Honestly, though, I didn't think that the flow, it, it, the flow suffered all that badly, in part because I think you... In, in traditional fashion, I mean this as a compliment, over-internalized the burden and played them faster than you might otherwise have been inclined to. And that is Full Moon Down, looking forward to more plays. I'm very glad. I do really like the faction asymmetry. I don't think it's the highlight of, the, of, of Tsukiyumi, but the faction asymmetry is pretty good, and I, I, I do like some of the designs. Finally for me, got to play Radiant Offline Battle Arena Champion Edition. Oh my god, these names this week. They're fantastic. <laughs> hit, hit me with that one more time. Radiant Offline Battle Arena. So it's Roba. It's not a MOBA. Uh, it's Roba. Oh, uh, right? nice. This is my, my Jack Murray at Heel Turn Games. This is a review copy sent to us by the publisher. And the original version of Radiant, which we played a few years ago, was originally published in 2019. I absolutely loved. In terms of minimalist, purely card-based, pseudo-MOBA-style gameplay... It does a fabulous job. You have shopping, you have the different lanes, you have trying to bust down towers, and you have leveling up and all that stuff, all in a very, very simple rule set with minimalist components. The only thing that isn't there is minions, and I do love minions in MOBA-style games. I'll admit it's my often my favorite part. But again, given that this is a minimalist card game, eh, I've seen other versions trying to vaguely approximate minions. There was a vague gesture towards them in Battle for Baternia. There was a vague gesture towards them in Elo Darkness. And in both cases, I don't think it was very convincing. It was mostly just, hey, remember? In this form, we have it. We have the form. We're doing the form. So, you know, just abandoning it is is, is preferable. At any rate, the Champion Edition does two things. First of all, it introduces new characters, which is always for the good in such games, so long as they're reasonably well done. And I I played with mostly new characters this time, and I found them the equal of others, and they had lovely tricks. For example, the tank that I that I picked, there are tanks, there are warriors, and then there are support characters. The tank that I picked uh, was a, a vengeful spirit, and when she died, she was the only character that can level up while she's dead, and leveling her up brings her back to life. And so you want her to die, and then you can bring her right back into the action, which I thought was really clever. It didn't it didn't shake out that way, because I kept throwing her into the mouth of danger, but my opponent refused to bite, as it were, <laughs> to continue the metaphor. And I the, the other thing that Champion Edition does is, you know, it gives you a nicer box. In the traditional way of the second edition, previously they didn't have dividers or a box that was meant to store everything. Now everything is designed to be stored in a proper way with lovely dividers, which I like. It makes setup and teardown a lot easier. And I, I'm just a massive fan of, of Radiant. I really enjoy its take on the MOBA conventions, and I really like it as a head-to-head card game. Besides, I think it gets a lot right. It is v- full of a lot of tense decisions, and the blood happens right away. There's not a whole lot of build-up or a whole lot of dancing around. It's really a question of where are you going to devote your resources. The lanes matter. Positioning matters. Action efficiency matters. Hand management matters. 
And I, it's, it's really a shame that it's not more widely available. There was a limited retail release of the original printing. I have not yet seen the Champion Edition available in broader retail yet. The Kickstarter fulfillment for the Champion Edition was, like everything else, very much delayed. It is the nature of COVID. What, what can you say? And the nature of crowdfunding. I am hoping that Radiant gets more attention with this release and that more content happens beside, because I would be very, very happy to support future endeavors by Hillturn Games, whether it's Roba in particular or other things in the future. So highest possible recommendation for two-player games this week. Really enjoyed the North, really enjoyed Radiant. And even in, as we always say, a crowded, crowded genre of player count, those are two card games that I'm going to be going back to. So that's Radiant Offline Battle Arena by Jack Murray at Hillturn Games. And those are the games we played this week. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. So we have frequently observed that the world would be a lot simpler if everyone would just get on the same set of social media or access the same set of content. Oh, I thought you were just going to say it would be easier if everyone just died. But sure, yeah, keep going. That's grim. <laughs> now I'm sad. <laughs> I mean, the world would be a lot simpler if everyone were dead, but why, why you got to be like I, that? I don't know. It's just the way you be? Hopeful, I guess. Wow. (laughs) Anyway, but one of the things that's important for uh, both success as a media endeavor, not that we know anything about that, or uh, accessibility is to be where people are. And this is, there's been a lot of discussion lately on Twitter about accessibility of the hobby for women, for other minoritized individuals. And I just want to give a shout out to Marceline Lyman, who published a really good thread about sometimes the systemic barriers that might be erected unintentionally or sometimes intentionally too in the face of, in this particular case, uh, people who want to submit game designs to publishers. And what she pointed out was that in the case of AEG in particular, which has had a number of controversies lately about some boneheaded statements about women, uh, that the only way you can submit designs to them is through their Facebook group which poses some problems. Trans people, some of them don't like Facebook because that's where their dead name is and a whole lot of pictures of them that doesn't represent them anymore. And so really something as simple as just having multiple ways to reach out to, to, to you can be a way to make sure that you're... Uh, that you have fewer barriers to accessibility. And I thought I just wanted to give a shout out because I thought it was such a good point and it was it was beautifully articulated. So thank you very, very much to Marceline. And I think it's incumbent on both media organizations and board game publishers to just be where people are. Make don't have barriers to getting in touch with you. Don't be insular. Don't have just the one place where you want to funnel everything. Is it more difficult? Sure, but quite frankly, it's worth it. Other game news now. We are a big fan of Cosmic Amphibians here at So Very Wrong About Games. Uh, regurgitating ones specifically. Specifically, regur- ones that regurgitate from the gullet. Uh, you know, preferably if you're going to be a Cosmic Amphibian, you'd best be two mile high and invulnerable. But not everybody can be a Cosmic Frog. Friedman Freeze is getting on the action, and he's de- he is designed and will soon be releasing a solitaire game that is supposed to be about pinball, and it is called Freaky Frogs from Outer Space. That is not me speaking quickly. It is literally out of space. O-U-T-A-S-P-A-C-E. That is a great title. It's not exactly World Eaters from Dimension Zero, but hey, more alien frogs are great. So news of other games coming out. Uh, Heavy Gear Solid, the board game. Mark, did you play the computer game Heavy Gear Solid? Uh, I've played many Metal Gears Solid. In fact, I I won a round of debating at the World Debating Championships based exclusively on stats of nuclear proliferation gleaned from the first Metal Gear Solid. People thought that I was some sort of erudite security expert. No, I had just played Metal Gear Solid. I remember the... I I don't think I ever played it, but I remember the novelty of, of the person, you know, Sneaking around inside a cardboard box. And oh, yeah. I, and I think I played like a, a multiplayer version where two people played spies and then a couple of people played security guards and, and there was some sort of interaction. No, no, no. That was just you wandering around through a food court in a cardboard box. Oh, that's right. Damn it. I can never return I know. to that. At least you know why. Court order. Um. So anyway, Simon has picked it up because it was going to come out earlier, but it was canceled. But now Simon has picked it up and it's going to be a pre-order exclusive. So no crowdfunding, just they're just going to bring it out. And if you pre-order it, you can get a 13 centimeter tall miniature of Metal Gear Rex. 
Yeah, so this is designed by Emerson Matsuuchi, he of Spectre Ops, so he's already got bona fides from the hidden movement genre. I can't help but notice, and again, we have recently become much more critical of Simon than we used to be in the past. We, we, love, we love a lot of their designs, but as a company, they've got a lot of sketchy practices. I can't help but notice, though, that a lot of people are like, oh, I used to be interested in this game. But now that it's Simon, because of their crowdfunding practices, this can't be trusted. And I'm like, I don't understand how one goes to the other. I mean, you can hate their crowdfunding practices. That's fine. But they're not crowdfunding. Like, if, if on a principled level, you want nothing to do with them because of their crowdfunding practices, of course, that makes sense. But if you're leery of crowdfunding per se, this this, this, ain't, this ain't crowdfunding. Yeah, they they always fund and they, they come through. And yeah, no one has ever, they've never left anyone in the lurch. Their so. only controversy that I've seen lately as their ridiculous prices for shipping, but it was it was all up front and, yep. and there was no but anyway, that's that's Simon, uh Metal Gear, solid the board game. Roger Tankersley, Trevor Benjamin, and David Thompson, the fabulous design trio who released Resist by Salt and Pepper Games, with the beautiful illustrations by Albert Montes. Well the the gang is back again. The Fab Four, this is a new term that I've coined that is exclusively for these individuals. Nice. I will be pursuing a patent and a copyright. They're going to be releasing a follow-up, same publisher, same illustrator, same designers, called Witchcraft. We have an early release copy sent to us by a designer, which we will be consuming in due course to give you our impressions. That is Witchcraft by Salt and Pepper Games. This is a multiple of five, ladies and gentlemen, and so we will acknowledge the existence of our Patreon. We've been putting out a lot of bonus content over the course of the past week, averaging in excess of one bonus episode a week. We have our award-ineligible show, Pledge of Indifference, where we cover crowdfunding. We have our new show, Sizzler, which is all about Spirit Island, and I am very, very pleased to have unleashed Jimbo and Megan onto the interwebs. People are big, big fans of Jimbo and Megan. We're going to have to get them their own merch, I think. That's <laughs> somehow. I don't I'm just rambling. So if you're at all interested in ad-free episodes, if you're interested in our bonus content, if you're interested in free games, if you're interested in making us dance like the trained gibbons that we are and telling us what to review and demanding bonus content in particular or special videos or what have you, please go visit us on patreon.com slash swag, S-V-W-A-G. And I'll give you access to all the stuff that we've done in the past. Yeah. Mark also does bloat. There's like a billion hours of bonus content there that you're getting already. <laughs> Mark does a ton of work for, for all the bonus stuff, and you need to check it out because it is all very good. And that is the news and why it doesn't matter. Now on to our feature game, The Crying Game. The Crying Game is a 1992 movie starring Forrest Whitaker and Jay Davidson. It, is, it was written and directed by Neil J- No. What? No. But it's crying. It's like Hermosa. It's a we crying game. We did not play that. Oh. That was a... a... Oh, you mean the Euro game designed by Gerard Descendi and Ferran Renelius? Yes, that one. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I get them I get them confused. They're both it's a crying a, game. A Lacrimosa. Yes. So Lacrimosa was designed by Gerard Descendi and Ferran Renelius, published by Devere Games in 2022. It is a one to four player Euro game of hand manipulation, deck building, a lot of other stuff in the tradition of modern Euro games. And this design duo has been responsible for 2019's On the Origin of the Species and 2022's ISS. And they've also done work independently of each other in the past as well. And Devere, of course, is the Spanish publisher that seems to be punching well above their weight class, certainly in terms of the quality of recent releases as far as we're concerned. So, Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in the Lacrimosa? Well, my dear people, back in the 1800s, there's no no Twitter, no no messaging people, no interwebs. And so you might think how, how not even MySpace? How possibly can we send messages out to people to to tell them about these operas and this music that's coming out? <laughs> well, we've got you covered. We have vampire mailmen. <laughs> they work all night, they can fly, they can get these messages out. This is how people communicated back in the 1800s, a business for war of vampire mailmen. Okay. And this is what this game is about. First of all, the minor uh, pedant note uh, that Mozart died in the 18th century, not in the 18th century. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Not the 18th century. century. Uh, Secondly, what Walker is referring to is (laughs) the picture, the the picture representing the action of performing or selling a work of music. Uh, it looks an awful lot like a, a cartoon drawing of a vampire holding a scroll. So we have labeled them vampire mailmen, 
And that is exclusively how we refer to that action now. So what you're actually doing in Lacrimosa... <laughs> Thank you. ...is there is an incomplete work of Amadeus Wolfgang Mozart. And Constanza wants to get it completed, so all these patrons have are, are coming together to try to complete it. So you're traveling around, you're doing this very interesting sort of card mechanism that we've seen in Revive, where you're doing a top action and a bottom action. You are are purchasing operas and, and religious music and parlor music, and you're trying to manipulate all these things in order to get the best score. Lacrimosa. I really like the framing. The framing I've commented on before. I, I wish it was yet more cynical. The idea is, is that as far as the traveling goes, you're telling Constanza about all those great times that you had with Mozart in various parts of Europe while he was still alive. It's like, oh yeah, me and me and Wolfie in London, we lo- we, we we went on this epic pub crawl, and everyone's like, really? I don't remember anything. I really wish they'd leaned into that because. Part of the historical background to both this game and the movie we're going to be discussing in Masterpiece Theater, spoiler alert, is the idea of different people and different patrons taking credit for work they didn't do. And <laughs> the part of the way you defended against that was by performing the work before they could do that. So, the the specifically the Requiem Mass, of which Lacrimosa is a part. The Lacrimosa of the Requiem Mass is the last thing Mozart ever did. The Requiem was unfinished, and finishing the Requiem is the point of the game. But when it was finished by Sussmeyer, his patron was, tr- was, we believe, going to take credit for having written it himself. And the only reason why he couldn't was because the widow Constanza had done a number of public performances and made it clear that, that the components had been written by Mozart. That intrigue, I think, should have been the focus of the game. This is a minor thematic quibble. I think we should have been different patrons t- trying to claim credit for the work. Rather than explicitly saying that we were commissioning the work, it should have been us posturing. It should have been a game about lying and taking credit for stuff you didn't do. It would it would leave to, it would would have led to much much more interesting table talk that is for sure <laughs> yeah I mean there's actually come to think of it there's nothing wrong with giving it you know a classic Walker redesign and and claiming that that's what's going on but whatever so what you're trying to do is make every card count because you're going to have a hand of four cards and from those four cards you're going to pick two you're going to pick your main action and then the other card is going to slide in on the bottom and this is going to lead to some deck building as well. And so you need to be very careful about what card you slide in the bottom, because when you do the deck building action, you're going to lose that card permanently. So you sort of have to make sure you know which card you're putting down there. And I really feel as though you every card needs to count throughout the entire game. You have five rounds, and every every round is almost completely different because it has a def- different deck of cards that are going to enter the system. There is a tile system on the board that where you travel around you get those that stays the same sort of cycles throughout the game but the cards that are the main part of the game have different decks for every turn so i'm going to say and i want to be very very clear i don't think that there's anything that lacrimosa does that is genuinely spectacular but it all comes together extremely well so in terms of the deck building the cards that are the, the central action of the game your deck will only ever be nine cards which is wild. <laughs> Whenever you buy a card, as Walker said, another card is leaving the game permanently. And you have to be very, very careful, therefore, about tuning your deck. In other deck builders, even very, very good deck builders, there's a certain amount of, of, of fluff. Like you buy a card, you don't know when it's going to come up again, except for the deck builders where it goes to the top of your deck or in your hand, which are admittedly the minority. But most of the time it goes into your deck. Your deck is, you know, 20, 30 cards maybe or even in games where your deck is really, really highly tuned, seldom does it go under 10. But here in Lacrimosa, you know for a fact that over the course of a given round, all but one card are going to be used in one way or another. And so every time you bury a card for the lower action for income for next turn, you are taking a hit. Every time you buy a card and wipe one out of the game, you sometimes the new card is just a strictly better version of the one you're burying, but nonetheless, you're making a decision about how your deck is going to be. And so I find the deck building aspects, which more and more Euro games are having deck building as an aspect of the game, but in Lacrimosa, it is so pointed and so evident right away how consequential it is that I really find it engaging. On that point of of realizing something right away, do you feel that this game would be difficult in the first game to handle where your victory points are coming from, right? Because the you're completing the Requiem and you're not exactly sure, you know, you know that 
it'll be the most, but you have no idea what's going to be the most or how many counters you're going to get out there and how the victory points are going to come throughout the cards or everything. I think it's very unclear on your first play how you're going to score points or the points that you're scoring during the game, how consequential they're going to be. Maybe. It's weird. You're right that that there's this disjunct between points you score during the game and the points you score at the end of the game. And I think for a lot of people, that's going to cause a little bit of difficulty because they can't immediately grok how many points are going to end up at the end. But I will say that in terms of the bulk of your points, they're going to come from two sources. One of them is buying new pieces of, of music. And there are two kinds of cards you can buy. One of them are action cards. We've talked about buying new action cards. And the other is pieces of music. You can have any number of pieces of music out in front of you, but there's a certain throughput limitation about how efficient more is, which in turn is a function of your deck. So they do interact a certain way. And those are a substantial source of points during the game. Like you buy a new opera that's very expensive. It gives you nine points near the end of the game. And that's pretty evident. The aspect of finishing the Requiem, I'll grant you that it's that it's easier to forget because it doesn't score during the game, but... That's actually one of the aspects that I find less enjoyable about the, the the competition, because let's talk about finishing the Requiem. What you do is you buy these tokens, and that allows you to, in turn, get some influence over what the, the, the Requiem is going to look like. There are going to be two designers, one of them being Sussmeyer, the guy who actually finished the Requiem, but then there's Eidler uh, and Stadler, and we call them Stadler and Waldorf, invariably. That's what we end up calling them. And at the end of the game... Your contributions to the Requiem will be worth more if you purchased more works from the designer who's dominant. But the thing is, whoever buys the first one usually sets the tone, right? If I'm the first one to contribute to a section of, of, of the Requiem and it's, I, it's, it's Abler, why, the opportunity cost of going to anybody else is so high. <laughs> and that, it's true, and you can base it off because the composers you choose have different tile numbers for each part of the Requiem, you can sort of game, yeah. it, game it out while well, I'm going to use this composer first and people will see that there are, you know, very few of the other ones that even if they try to, you know, bring it the other way around, right. they're not going to be able to. So it's, I enjoy that part where you can very much sort of steer the the course of the game. Yeah, I'll use this criticism of Lacrimosa to segue into to, to more praise because although the competition for whether, you know, Sussmeyer or whoever else is going to be dominant in that section of the Lacrimosa, and it's usually evident as of the first purchase, seldom is it the case that anyone makes a push to, to reverse that first purchase. So whatever. So you know whether a given token is going to be worth four points at the end of the game or two. But... Uh, I, I commented earlier on in the show that for a lot of Euro games, the most salient aspect of player interaction is I got there first. Well, there are three aspects of I got there first in Lacrimosa. Buying cards, getting to various traveling spots on the map, and filling up the Requiem. All three of them are very pointed. So this isn't like a lot of other Euro games where it's like, well, there's a card display, and that's the one area where you need to get there first. You're always juggling these three aspects as a general rule. And the traveling tiles, there are going to be a lot of really good ones. you got to get there first. You got to make sure you fulfill your needs for the Requiem because if you wait too long, you're going to be left out in the cold and the valuable cards really get snatched up pretty quickly. So at the end of the day, there's not a huge amount of player interaction, but it's slightly better than a lot of other Euros. Yeah. So I don't want to go back to the Requiem. I'll just finish up what I have here. It's that you have a limited number of tokens and they all represent instruments, which you have to make sure that you have, you know, you have the right instruments to go to the spots that you want to. And then there's also limited composer tiles, which we've already talked about. And then you also have to have the right card at the right time. If you don't have the Requiem card, then guess what? You can't do that action. Right. And then on top of that, they all cost a certain number of resources. So you have to sort of vie for that as well. So, so tight, limited stuff. Yeah. And the resource manipulation of Lacrimosa is pretty much exactly how I like it. Money is tight, but not cripplingly tight. Plus... I really like Euros where you have a combination of resources that will disappear at the end of the round and resources that persist. There are three different kinds of quote-unquote story points, and this is you, again, as a patron, trying to tell Constanza about how you and Mozart were BFFs. There are travel stories about you and Mozart on the road. There are Mozart's talent stories about how you were always Mozart's best patron. And then there are com composition points, which are talking about how you were really the inspiration behind anyway. Uh, so those things are tracked on three different tracks and they just represent currency. They will bottom out at the end of the round, but you can also with slightly more difficulty, get these tokens that persist from round to round. That trade-off is 
what I really like. It's not as cripplingly difficult as, well, I got to spend everything. There's a little bit of leeway, but not so much that you can be careless. And you really have to be careful about setting up your next round in terms of the currencies. Again, which ties back to the excellent card play. Yeah, and because everything is tight. Because when it is your turn, you want to do almost everything. There's cards there that you want, and you want those cards because they're at a certain point, because it's a, a sort of system that they flow down and they become cheaper or less expensive, so you want to get them now. The Requiem is filling up faster than you thought. The Mozart, well, actually, who is traveling through Europe? Who? What is that? Conceptually, there, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Okay, well, there's a floating head. There's a floating head. Well, that's Mozart, but like, it's not chronological. It's not like he's going from place to place. It's you telling stories about how you and Mozart did things in various places. So, it's, it's, so Mozart, Mozart's cruising around Europe. <laughs> so that that particular action, I think, is more of a you know opportunity. Like someone's moved him close to what you want to do, so you're going to take that opportunity to do it. Or you're early and and you want to snatch up the tile that you really need. Right. Because the further you move Mozart, the more expensive it is. But and that sort of ties into this other. Uh, religious music thing. There are, there, are, mm. there are tiles there that directly correspond to a type of music, so you can even use that path as combinations. Right. There are, there are four stuff. different kinds of musical composition. Three of them, the sonatas, the operas, and chamber music, are roughly the same, although there are reasons to prefer one or the over, over there based on specific tile synergies. And then there's religious music, which as a rule doesn't give you any money when you perform it. And as a consequence... There are lots of tiles, both in the context of the Requiem sometimes and in the case of traveling around Europe more often, that really synergize with religious music. And so that's the combo building aspect uh, more strictly emphasized. You can build combos off of the other types too with, with various composer tiles, but religious music is the one that really needs them in order to get up to snuff. And that small degree of asymmetry is occasionally cool and occasionally frustrating when none of the appropriate cards come out of the initial flop. <laughs> So you've talked about gathering this music and you have this wide range of different music in front of you, but there's this, you know, very big decision space on how much to keep because you can either perform yeah. them or sell them. But you also, there are also these scoring tiles that you're going to pick up as well as you travel through Europe and you need uh, music from certain periods of the game. So it's this, this very interesting, do I sell them to get to money that I need now? Do I keep them because you can tap them for yep. income? All of these interesting things, very good. And like many euros of its type, the more you can maximize your actions of actually getting points, as opposed to those occasional necessary actions of just getting money to facilitate other things, the better off you are. So there's an overall question of maintaining a high tempo. If you can build up the necessary infrastructure, I, I use that term loosely, to make sure that you don't have to just take a turn getting money, the better off you are. But it's not so demanding that you can't take a turn or two to make money over the course of the game just so you can do other things. Speaking of taking a turn to get money, there are, so these are things that will sort of save you. There's a couple of, you know, safety nets in the game. So you, like you said, you can skip your turn to get the round money. I was, I was just even speaking of taking a turn just to perform opera, gotcha. just to get cash. Ah, gotcha. But there is also, there's also that. Yes. There's also you, if, if there's nothing you can do, Probably suboptimal. Yeah, but at that point, be, you're probably in a little bit of trouble. You'll get yeah. you'll get money equal to the round number. But also, there is a method to, if you have a, a, a bunch of money, you can start buying those tokens to help you uh, get better stuff, or you can sell those tokens. So it's either you're buying them for $3 or selling them for a dollar. So it's not so great selling them, but if you really, if you're short that $1 to do something, then at least it has these small safety nets that you have. I hate to correct you again, Walker, but I believe the technical term is dollarino. Dollarino. Yeah. Dollarama, dollar, dollarina. Well, dollar. no, no, you, you take your dollarinos and you spend them at the dollarama. Gotcha. I apologize for the correction. The editorial gibbons were howling in my ear. Very short thing. There's also a period bonus, which means at every round has a, a main card. And depending on how many of those particular actions are in your tableau, you'll get a benefit. In the last game we played, like normally it's not a big deal. And really, yeah, most of the time it's, disa it's disappointingly inconsequential, yeah. to be frank. But I felt the last game we played, it was much better because almost all of them gave you money as a benefit. Yeah. So it, it at least in my case, it sort of helped, you know. And often the money ones sort of were, were, were two ducats as opposed to a lot of them that are just, you know, every time you did this action, you get a one ducat. Correct. Which is half as many ducats, I think, roughly. Right. I haven't done the math yet. Right. Yeah, we'll, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll get back to you we'll on that We'll send it one. to the accountant. He'll let yeah, us know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And yeah, that that's one part that I thought wasn't as consequential as it could be. I I do wish that there was a little bit more of a safety net for people who are really behind the eight ball in terms of money. Because, I mean, really, if you're out of money, there's not anything you can do, really. There's a very small number of things that advance your victory conditions that do not require cash. Very small. And a lot of them are situational. They might all be gone by the by the time you need to do it. But I really do appreciate the fact having having had to teach the game. And I grant you, I I, I got a couple things wrong on the, on the on the first play, but that was entirely my fault. The core actions are incredibly simple. There are five different kinds of actions in Lacrimosa, and they're all very straightforward. And I mean, literally, it's the case that in the rule book, they just occupy just two pages. <laughs> There's just you open it up. These are the actions. These are how they go. And yeah, there are questions, uh, some questions about the iconography and how various things combine together on occasion. And people tend to find the scoring for the composers a little bit counterintuitive because it's again, it's kind of sort of an area majority, but it's not by player. It's by whichever composer is dominant, and then they just give the points out indiscriminately to players regardless of how many they have there. But the core actions are incredibly transparent. And I really think that's the way to go. I mean, if it's the case that you can always understand how you're pulling the levers at that point, you know, being able to, to marvel at the variety of different options available to you is much better than like, I don't know how to move Mozart. That doesn't make any sense to me. And so it, everything really comes to a head where the game uh, of, of Lacrimosa decides to be simple. It's really quite straightforward and pointed. And I think that it's got a good editorial sense of when to be Baroque. <laughs> and when to be, I'm sorry, I, I I just, I know Baroque doesn't apply. I just like to apologize generally for my musical ignorance over the course of this. I'm sure I've used a lot of terms that all the, the, the music people there, I know nothing about the structure of music. I'm completely ignorant about classical music generally and, and musical theory in particular. Anyway. <laughs> so I apologize. I love... The fact that you can plan out your whole turn. You say, okay, next turn, I need to do these things. <laughs> and then you see your hand of cards. Right. And then you try to plan what you had in mind, hoping that the cards come in the order that you need them to. Yep. And and turning on a dime and manipulating the cards in a way that, you know, you get to do what you want anyway. Yeah, I see that all the time. Like, there are some people, you know, they got these beautiful boards, these beautiful double layer boards that you slide cards into with lovely little recesses for the round summary and a, a cute little recess for the crest that marks when you, when you passed, uh, lapped around the, the score track. It's really, really nice. Uh, they, they look so good actually that, that it's a shame that when you open them, you don't get to see how pretty they are on the outside. And, you know, people lay out, it's like, okay, I'm going to do these four actions. And then the card flop changes or they see what they pull up next and they're like, oh, oh, wait. Oh, geez. And so, again, that to me is proof positive that there's, you know, slightly more player interaction than the, the purely non-interactive Euros, that there's tension introduced by the composition of one's deck. And I really appreciate those those little <laughs> those little notes. Those little nuances. <laughs> uh, I, I swear this is unintentional. I'm, it, I'm very sorry. It's happened many times where people will scream in outrage where they've taken a card. Someone, <laughs> someone ahead of them has taken a card they wanted, has either moved Mozart so far away that they can't get to where they wanted or taken the tile that that uh, they wanted to take anyway, filled up a certain requiem. There is this constant pressure in all of these spots, and that is why. I think this is a great game. Yeah, Lacrimosa, I I wouldn't necessarily go so far as to say great. I think it's very, very good. I really appreciate the way that it integrates deck building in a very, very pointed and focused way. But I don't necessarily think that it reaches the absolute top tier. But it is one that I will absolutely suggest on occasion, and I would keep in rotation for the, 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 the regular playing. And it's, uh, you know, the core mechanisms are so simple that it is absolutely suited to occasional play. You don't need to make sure that you're constantly in the groove of having to remember all the weird things work. It's it's a very, very successful design, and I think that it bears its weight quite well. And it, again, the quality is such that I will look out for future works of Jared Ascendi and Fern Renelius, and I'd be inclined, inclined to try out their past designs as well, because I haven't played any of the games they've designed before. And I'm definitely impressed with DeVere's output. This is the same publisher. So they, they republish a lot of things. They're a distributor and they, they, they localize a lot of games. But they are they are the first publisher, I believe, of Red Cathedral, Batoku, Jerusalem, and Lacrimosa. And that's a good track record of above average solid Euros. So, Agreed. 
And that is Lacrimosa. Thank you very, very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find all the necessary contact information at sowronggames.com slash contact. Lots of good information there. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for spending some time with us. We appreciate you tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Biggin. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. Hello, dear listeners. Welcome once again to Swag Presents Masterpiece Theater. In honor of His Grace, Dr. Dr. Vincent, Duke of Diesel, Esquire, OBE. This week we will be discussing Amadeus. From 1984. Yeah. Nominated for 11 Academy Awards. Deserved every nomination. Winning eight of them. Yeah, well, that's a good hit Including right Best Picture. Well then. So this is a story about a petty, mediocre talent who envies his betters and has a weakness for sweets. This is a character I cannot sympathize with at all. And a crude, ungracious, juvenile person who acts like he's the smartest in the room and has a grating, high-pitched laugh. This also is someone I cannot associate with at all. So, I mean, I had no ability to uh, identify with either of the two main characters. So I thought one of the... <laughs> I know, right? I th- See, there's the laugh! There's the... I think the casting director should have won an Academy Award. <laughs> I really feel as though every character in this game... Or, you know, <laughs> movie. From, this is a movie, Walker. This one's a movie. I say game, I'm You sorry. said game, that's fine. From, from In this movie... From the Archbishop to Amadeus himself to to Salieri, Salieri, yep, to to his wife, everyone, everyone's marvelous, yeah. marvelous, yeah. Uh, I a special shout out to me for uh, F. Murray Abraham, who's one of my favorite American actors. Uh, he was brilliant in Homeland, which I realize is a show, but it's controversial. Uh, he was he was great in The White Lotus, uh, playing a sex pest. Apparently, he might be a bit of a suspect sex pest, according to accusations. I don't know. He had a great bit part in Inside Lowen Davis. Wonderful one. Anyway, he's a brilliant, brilliant actor. Also, a special shout out to the Emperor Jeffrey Jones, whose comic acting was peerless. Yep, the straight he- man just. Oh. oh, just the way he would say, there it is. And it was just so beautiful. Uh, he was also Principal Rooney in... He, he was Ferris Bueller's Day he, Off. Ferris Bueller's Day Off. So good. Yeah, every one of the cast is is absolutely pitch perfect. This is... Uh, I, I have to say, though, Walker. Yes. I'm very sorry. This is yeah, one of go. the more pretentious things I've yeah, ever said in my out, life. Go for it. I'm sorry. So I, first the play was based off of, off, off of another play. Then... Oh, it was? Yes. I didn't know that. Yeah. So, th- so the play uh, and also the uh, person who wrote the movie is Robert Schaefer. Uh, I saw the play performed at um, uh, Stratford, which is a local Ontario theater festival. And I have to say, I prefer the play because <laughs> there are these brilliant monologues where Salieri is bargaining with God. And the, they're, they're present in the movie, but in a very condensed form. And quite frankly... Uh, I don't know. Did you watch the director's cut or the normal version? Wa- well, today, I'm not sure. I think I've never seen the director's cut, but today I went through the director's cut. It's three hours, Mark. Yeah. So I didn't have time to, to you know, pull re-watch in, it again, rewatch yeah, yeah. the entire thing, but I did watch it's quite a, lot. a bit of it. I, ha- I have to say that this is one of those times that I think the director's cut is, and I feel terrible saying this because it's still a brilliant movie, it's a little self-indulgent. I think that the theatrical cut is better, especially for me, who, again, doesn't really have an independent appreciation of classical music, because the scenes of the operas just go on for a long time. And I find the character drama more compelling. To be frank, this, Amadeus, fundamentally, as far as I see, is one of my favorite topics in all of theology, which is theodicy, T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y, which is reconciling the notion of an omnibenevolent, omnipotent, omnipresent God with the existence of evil and suffering in the world, which is a topic that I've read a lot about. It's one of my favorite topics, and it is exactly what the inability to reconcile those two is fundamentally what drives the main character and leads to his ruin. And I love that. It's a very, very common thing. Like, you hear this all the time. People who get sick and they're like, what did I do wrong? Like, I did all the right things. It's like, well, no. And I've said this before, life is desperately unfair. I don't take any pleasure in saying that. I know life is unfair because I'm happy. And that's how I know life is unfair. (laughs) Anyway, such a good movie. So this is, it's loosely based on on history. Yeah, very loosely. loosely. Oof. Because, well, 
a lot of the things in the movie did happen, but they happened in all sorts of places all over their, all over Europe, and they they've condensed all of these things that happened in in a very short time sure. period, all in one city. Mo- mostly, the part where I get uncomfortable about its so-called historical gloss is how it does Salieri dirty, right? Like as a story, it's great. There's substantial evidence to suggest that Salieri and Mozart were nice colleagues, and that Salieri, you know, didn't try to murder him. No, no, and they they they, they worked together. On, <laughs> they on they some collaborated. Projects. They taught. Yeah, they, yeah. they learned from each so, other. Yeah. So the movie starts out with with actual facts. Salieri tries to commit suicide. Yes. And for the last year and a half of his life, he is uh, committed to an institute. Yeah, because he was suffering and, from dementia. And, yeah. and, and a priest comes in to take his last confection, and then he and he sort of starts spouting the story of the movie. That, yeah. That yeah. That's place. the framing device of the narration. Yeah. And, and I think the the part of the movie that I enjoy the most because that actor is so brilliant is, is the change in his face and his voice and the tone of everything there is Mm. talking about Amadeus's music. Yes. And, and and, him in reverie and the joy and and how his face just lights up. It's true. And then, and then he starts to talk about Amadeus as a person and then it just turns to the spiteful, evil hatred. And I I think it's brilliant. It's wonderful. No, it's, it's a, it's, it's a classic portrait of a man driven to ruin over petty, uh, petty grievance and petty jealousy. Jealousy. Yeah. And it's, I mean, look, in defense of the historical uh, Salieri, because again, there's not evidence to suggest that he, like, and also they kind of under undermine, uh, again, I know very little about music, practically nothing. Uh, but Salieri was very formative in terms of establishing some of the formalisms of opera. So it's not like he was he was a thorough mediocrity who was just pumped up to nothing. Apparently he, he was indeed a great talent. Not a Mozart. But saying that you're not as talented as Mozart is kind of like saying that you're merely a genius, not a super genius. And uh, Salieri, at the end of his life, you know, his um, a lot of members of his family died in rapid succession. He was alive to see Austria humiliated by France during the Napoleonic Wars. Like the number that France did on Austria in the early 19th century was really bad. Like they went out of their way to, to, to kneecap the country and a lot of humiliating. Anyway, so I feel really bad for, for Salieri. Apparently though, as a consequence of Schaefer's play in the movie, uh, some of his work, uh, some of his music uh, made a bit of a comeback. It, that's this, what, I, that's what I've, what I've read. Yeah. And he lived for, for that time period, lived to very a, long life. Yeah. Ridiculous. And, and Mozart only lived to his early thirties. Yeah, so, yeah. 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 35. Yeah. 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 Anyway, uh, highly recommended. One of the one of the greats of uh, one of my movies. favorite movies. Yeah. I would recommend the theatrical version. Frankly, uh, not that the director's cut is bad, but unless you really, really want to see, I think, like you know, two to five minute scenes of them recreating various operas, which might be your bag, that's fine. Uh, but uh, yeah, one of the greats from uh, a great director, Milos Forman. Yeah, the bureaucracy of 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 trying to create music in in this oh royal... the, court, the court intrigues yeah. were so beautiful. Ugh. The, like the the ballet to no music, <laughs> just, <laughs> yeah, just exactly. makes me laugh every time. Yeah, anyway. no, it was really good, and too many notes. <laughs> yeah. how, how would you say? Um, too many notes. Yes, yes, that's it. Too many notes. <laughs> would you say which notes you didn't yeah. like, sire? Which, that which... I should take out. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> and that's indeed what I would say about the director's cut. Too many notes. Too many notes. <laughs> well, thank you very much for joining us for this. Swipe presents Masterpiece Theater. Please join us again next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.